Montana. Remember that time it was 2024? I'm your host, Anna Webb. And I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out on all their favorite moments in history. Wow. And we're back. We're back. And it's 2024. We took a month off. It felt a lot longer than that for Yeah, me. it did. I don't know why. Um, I think because we recorded the last one, like, kind of early. Yeah. So it's been a while. So sorry for a little rusty. Yeah. <laughs> it has been a little over a month, and the cat's being feral, so that's great. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Delilah, what do you need? Hello? <laughs> Nothing, just to stare at yeah, us. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so we took a month off. We're back. Mm-hmm. It is, by the time you're listening to this, it is 2024, which mm-hmm. is absolutely wild. Yeah. That's 10 years since I graduated from college. Whoa. So I feel great. That's crazy. And normal um, about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like... A New Year's drink update. Of course. We're in the same room. Yes. So you can see. And also we're we're having the same thing. We are. We're having a little homemade wassail or wassail. I don't know how you say it. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. I made it. All okay. right. So <laughs> it's a New Year's special. So this episode should be coming out on New Year's Day as long as all goes to plan. Um, so we decided to talk about things that happened on New Year's Day. Yeah. New Year's Day events. Mm-hmm. So you're going to go first? Yeah. Okay. We, we picked two um, things that were pretty important and pretty interesting. Yeah. And we're just going to talk about like a little bit of the backstory of how they came to be. Yeah. And then the, the day itself. So uh, for mine, I have chosen that the Emancipation Proclamation is signed on January 1st of 1863. Nice. So. What a great year, 1863. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know about all that. I was being sarcastic. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Um, so Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that leads up to that coming into being. Right. Yes. Um, and also, I think a lot of stuff that is, um, there's a lot of misconceptions about the Emancipation oh, yeah, Proclamation. yeah, for sure. So a lot of what I have here is just actually explaining what it is and what it well, did specifically. you say miscon- misconceptions. It's really just blatant misinformation. Yeah. We've been taught the wrong things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, On purpose. So, one thing that I always think is important to note when talking about Lincoln and slavery in general is that his primary goal during the Civil War was not to end slavery. No. um, But to preserve the Union. He thought it would be too controversial to end slavery. Which it was, to be fair. He believed that it was um, a morally incorrect thing. Yeah, ultimately, he he was, like... But he was not an active abolitionist. Yeah, in his beliefs, he... Had He had abolitionist beliefs, but not practices. Right. Is kind of how I would say it. Um, like, he got elected because people thought he was going to end slavery. Um, right. Uh, and then once he got into office, he was a little like, well, I don't know. Well, once he got into the office, several states yeah. decided they were going to become their own country. And he was like, well, I don't know what to do about all right, that. Right. Um, I would like to do an episode on Lincoln sometime, but it would be Long. hefty. Yeah. Um, so... That, I think, is important background for while we're talking about the Emancipation Proclamation. So, towards the end of 1862, the Confederate Army is beginning to gain a little bit of an advantage in the Civil War. Like, yeah. they, the, the Union is not progressing as much as they would like to this far into the war. 
So some measures are going to need to be taken at this point, right? We're going to have to start doing some stuff. Something drastic. Yeah, to get this moving along. So on September 22nd of 1862, after the Union victory in the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln issues the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which states that all enslaved people in rebellious states will be freed on January 1st of 1863. So he has been working on this proclamation for a little while. His advisors tell him, you should wait until after a Union victory to announce it. Right. Because if you announce it, well, if you announce it right now, it's going to seem like we're desperate. Right. Yeah. And if you announce it after a victory, it's going to seem like, and here's the next step. Right. Right. Yeah. So he had actually had this for a little while. A lot of people had told him, you shouldn't do this. And he said, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So um, at this point, it's what we're doing. When am I yeah. going to do it is really what the question right. is. So that's when he announces it. And his thought, um, like the reason for the Emancipation Proclamation in terms of like war strategy mm-hmm. is that he thinks that freed people will come north. They are going to be allowed to enlist in the Union Army. Right. Or that they'll rebel, right? And when they leave and rise up, it's going to deplete the Confederacy's economy, right? Which will therefore injure the war effort, right? right so right. he's—it's a strategic move. It yeah. is not out of the goodness of his heart. No. It is very much a war move, yeah. right? Now, this is where I think it can get a little complicated because most people are taught. That the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, ends slavery freed in the United the enslaved States. Enslaved people. Yeah. That is what was written in our textbooks. Yeah. yeah, it ends slavery in the United States. It does, it does not. not. This is not true. Right. Um, it also does not free all slaves in the U.S. at the time right. either. Like it, it's a very specific list. So it only applies to the ten states that are still in active rebellion against the United States as of January first, eighteen sixty-three. Right. So his thought of making the preliminary proclamation in September is that if some of those states surrender or come under union control before January 1st, they would still be allowed to keep the institution of slavery. So he was giving them an out. He was saying, if you stop now, I'm not going to free the slaves. You you guys can keep the institution. Yeah. And the war will be over, right? right? That, of course, does not happen. Because at this point, it's a point of pride. It's Well, and also, I don't know how much of that was made clear to those states. Do you know what I'm saying? Nothing. So they probably just heard, I am going to free your enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And they went, no. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it... There, yeah, when it gets announced, it's, there's a lot of misconception about right. it. We'll come back to that. But that's the idea. Was like That was the reason he did the preliminary. Yeah, and yeah. also you're right. Like It's too far gone at this point. They want their own country where they can do whatever they want, and they're not going to be subject to any kind of control from mm-hmm. the U.S. Union Especially government. from Lincoln, because right. those people did not like yes, Lincoln. Yes, correct. Um, so the areas that were under the proclamation at, when it is issued – are Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, the majority of Louisiana, and the majority of Virginia. Virginia. So the reason that it's not all of those two states is that there was a chunk in the southern part of Louisiana that was already under union control at the time. Right. So they don't count. Mm -hmm. And for us, um, several Virginia counties are in the process of becoming their own state. So they are exempt as well from the proclamation. 
It also does not include the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. This was an issue. Yeah. Because these states have not outlawed slavery in their constitutions, but they didn't secede with the Confederacy. So they are Union states, but legally people can still have slaves there. Now, that is falling out of practice by this time in those states, and over time, those states are going to add that to their constitutions. But that was a big issue. More and more away from the war, it's like, well, now you have to, because every other state is doing it. Yeah. So, but this was a big deal because a lot of people think he should have included those border states as well. Yeah, but that, I understand why he didn't, because strategically that could have damaged those, they could have, they could have seceded. Exactly. Right. Uh, But this was, it was a big issue that those places were not included. Right. Uh, Despite all of the gaps, I don't agree. Just to be clear, get rid of the slavery in all of them. I'm just saying from a strategic standpoint, I understand why why he he didn't didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But despite all of its gaps, it still changes the legal status of approximately 3.5 million enslaved African Americans in the Confederate States. And that is, the the population of enslaved people at the time was about 4 million. Right. So this does change the legal status of most of those people. Right. It does not change the actual lives of most of those people initially, but it does. Because also, like, we're in the middle of a war. So, like, what are their options then? Mm Mm-hmm. Join the army. That's the yeah, option. exactly. And that was they the goal. They still can't own land. Mm-hmm. You know, where are they supposed to go? Yeah. Um. Now, before the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, here's a little bit of background of, like, some other legal actions that end up affecting who gets freed when the Emancipation Proclamation comes mm-hmm. into place. So, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Right, yeah. This was a thing where if um, enslaved people ran away from... Um, the people who owned them. Yeah. They would, like, by law, people in the North would have to return them, yeah, which crazy. was a big mm-hmm. issue. During the war, though, in May of 1861, a Union general, Benjamin Butler, declared that enslaved people who, had, who escaped to Union lines were considered contraband of war. So this was his way of getting around the Fugitive Slave Act. Right. These people have run away. They have joined the army this guy says we need the men right and so we are not going to return them because we're going to consider them contrabands of war well they consider them property exactly which is still gross but that was the his way of getting around yes. the law yes. was to say well we weren't going to return these it's folks just in the first place them in a different way exactly we weren't going to return these folks in the first place so let's make up some garbage that says yeah. that they can stay essentially um but then when they are considered contrabands of war, they have to continue fighting. Right. Because they're they're not legally allowed to free them. So now they've basically been shanghaied into yeah. the army. Yeah. Cool. Um so part of the Emancipation Proclamation says that the army and navy will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. So everyone who had been considered contraband is freed, freed when the con- when the proclamation goes into effect mm-hmm. and they are then allowed to leave or to stay right. if they so choose, which a lot which, of them did. Of course, because yeah. again, where else are they going to go? Yeah. Well, and a lot of them fled to join the army in the first place. So, many of them. Yeah. yeah so sure. like that is cuz it was their out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um 
That's so that is like part of the like legalese of how people get so that's how they are able to then free several other people who were no longer in those confederate states like these people also now all get a declaration of freedom in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise so uh between twenty five thousand and seventy five thousand people who are in the union controlled areas of the confederacy are immediately freed on january 1st where the proclamation is signed if they know about it which they do in these union controlled areas they are told right um these people who are in the army they are told they are immediately freed right now word of the proclamation also is spreading through the confederate states so the enslaved people in the confederate states know they know this is coming. Most of them. Yeah. They know this is coming. They've been sharing it. They're, I was reading a bunch of <laughs> accounts from, like, Booker T. Washington yeah. and, like, all these people who have written about their experience of saying, like, him. yeah, we have gone and shared this information and now we all know. Right. The thing about it was nobody really knew what, what happens do. next. Right. So they what know. What are the logistics of this? Legally, they are free. Right. They also know that the Confederacy is not going to follow that rule. Right. 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 This is the problem. Yeah, it legally frees all of those people, but it doesn't practically because... That's why people cannot be property. Yeah. That's it doesn't practically because the Confederate states so are not going to follow it. But those people, if they leave or if they rebel, like, the Union is not going to do anything about that because... Right. Of course not. You guys have the legal right now. We've given you the legal right, right? It's <sighs> very complicated. Um, it's terrible. Uh, I hate it. I hate <laughs> that yeah. any of it happened. So even though they are freed on January 1st, the Emancipation Proclamation is not enforced in the Confederate States unless they are taken over by the Union. But part of making this proclamation was them saying, as we take over the South, we are, we are going to free these people. Yeah. yeah. So that was also a part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for most people, their freedom relies on them fleeing to the North, joining the Union Army, or rebelling. Um, but as the Union Army takes control of Confederate areas... Um, the proclamation gives the legal framework for three and a half million people to be and then again, freed by the end of the war. And then again, what do they do? They yeah. join the army, because that's the only thing they really right. can do. Ugh, but through crazy. all of this, through the um, enacting of the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln then starts working on reconstruction plans. Right, yeah. Um, which, that's a whole other thing that we will yeah. not get into. Um, but he starts working on reconstruction plans, most of which don't get to go into place because he gets assassinated. Right. Because of the Emancipation right. Proclamation. People so, like, like so much leads off of this, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I pulled a little bit here that's talking about uh, New Year's Eve yeah. of 1862 for um, African Americans across the country. They gathered um, to hold a watch night ceremony for what they called Freedom's Eve. Yeah. Because they knew at midnight they were considered free. Even though that didn't practically help all of those people, they still knew. It's a step. Yeah. I got this from Wikipedia, but it's good information. Estimates of the number of slaves freed immediately by the Emancipation Proclamation are uncertain. The the contraband of war that Mm -hmm. um, population is considered around 10,000. Jeez. Um, Another 20,000 from Union-occupied zones. Uh area parts of eastern north carolina the mississippi valley northern alabama the shenandoah valley of virginia and a large part of arkansas and all of the islands off the coast of georgia and south carolina were Mm -hmm. all union occupied right so they weren't they were all under the 
proclamation. So all of those places right. had liberation immediately. Right. So it it was a mixed sure. bag. Yeah. Um, at the end, though, the Emancipation Proclamation opens the door for a complete end of slavery in the United States. Most of the border states would end up abolishing slavery in their own state constitutions as right. the war went on. So, like, when West Virginia officially becomes a state, that is it's added in into our constitution. Right. So they didn't add those Virginia counties to the proclamation because they, they knew that was already happening. That exactly, yeah. Right. Um, as did several Confederate states that were rejoining the Union as the war went on. So, like, right. Louisiana they were falls pretty early, yeah. and they then reorganize their state constitution when they well, rejoin the states. And I don't know this for sure, but you, I mean, somebody who knows more about the war would probably know, but you have to think it was part of, probably part of the surrender terms. Was you have point. to, yeah. I would guess. Um, Sorry, I kicked you. You're good. <laughs> um, but Louisiana, I know, like, adds it to their yeah. constitution because they go pretty early and, like, yeah. yeah. So it just kind of went on. Yeah, sort of and naturally. then it just yeah. didn't get much better after yeah. that but uh, you know, um, at the very least very yeah. very least mm-hmm. it was the start because yeah. the emancipation proclamation also then leads to the 13th amendment right which yeah. officially ends slavery in the united states right for everyone everywhere right. um uh, that probably would not have happened without the emancipation well, proclamation well sorry you say everyone everywhere right. but that is not true because no. our prisons are still yeah. essentially slave labor but yeah. um <sighs> But it it the 13th Amendment probably would not have happened without the Emancipation no, Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation, wa- while imperfect, was the correct first move um, yeah, for I, yeah. the strategy of war. It was the way that Lincoln was able to start the conversation, basically, um, sure. and get it legally moving in a way that if he had made, you know, the 13th well, Amendment immediately, yeah, the, the Confederate always... States would have, it would have... It was always yeah. going to be born out of war because yes. it was so deeply entrenched into the American culture, the colonialist American culture. The entirety of the South's so, economy ran on exactly, yeah, economy slave labor. too. Yeah. yeah, so it was all it was always going to be born mm-hmm. of war. Yeah, because there was no way. Mm-hmm. Imagine if the Civil War hadn't even started, and then one day the president was like, "Actually, I'm going to free all those we're going to free all those people." Okay, so then that would start a war, right? right. So it, there's no way yeah. it wasn't. And that's why. Like that. That's why, boys and girls, when anyone tells you that the Civil War was about anything other than slavery, they are they're wrong. wrong and they're lying to you and right. it's incorrect. Right. States' rights to own slaves, right. like exactly. that's what it is. Yeah. So, but this was this was the start. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I just thought that. January 1st, yeah. it was a and new year, freed all those that, people. Yeah. I know that many people, obviously, in the U.S. still kind of celebrate watch they night. Do like a watch they, night, yeah. 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 yeah, that's a, a thing still. Okay. Good one. Mm-hmm. That's all you had? That's all I had. Great. All right. So I am going to talk about the uh, first immigrants arriving at Ellis Island. I love this. On January 1st, 1892. There I go. My chair went down. Yep. I don't need to be up anymore because I'm not actively, (laughs) like, yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Ellis Island. I don't want to go too deep into it because there's a a lot of history of Ellis Island and it kind of goes all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to talk about how we got to the point of immigrants entering through Ellis Island and then kind of some of the stuff they went through, going through that port and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So Ellis Island now is a federally owned Island in New York Harbor. And it's between, it's technically both in New York and New Jersey. Yes. 
So it was a whole thing. It was like formed by glaciers. It's all very interesting. Mm-hmm. But before the government owned it, um, and obviously has history, um, the native Mohegan name for the island was Kiosk. I think I'm saying that right, but I'm sorry. I probably am not. Um, and that means Gull Island because it had a very large population of seagulls. Mm-hmm. It's an island. It's probably not super likely that indigenous folks lived on the island because it's believed that that group was probably mostly hunter-gatherers and there would have um, been a lot of stuff no there. and also at high tide it would would have been like totally submerged right so you couldn't really live on it right um but it was their land mm-hmm. technically um in 1630 the dutch buy the island by, I don't know exactly how that went. They certainly write their name on a tree and say that it's theirs. Sure, yeah. I guess. Um, and they give it as a gift to the man who helped to found New Netherland, which was the Dutch colony up in that area back mm-hmm. in the day. All that area is, was Dutch at the beginning. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, they get that island, and then there are a couple other islands nearby that they buy as well buy again i don't know the whole details and they are called they're referred to as the oyster islands um Mm. because there are lots of oysters that they Mm -hmm. can catch there um and the island that we now know as ellis island they start referring to it as little oyster island Mm -hmm. um and it sells kind of a few times after that it changes ownership um and i read that in the 1760s it's seen as it's used as a public execution site for pirates huh they would like hang people in this Uh one tree there but there wasn't like a ton of evidence that like this was a regular practice like it's totally possible that some of the dutch colonists were like what the heck's going on over there that's that it seems like that's happening maybe they just started to know it as that i don't totally know so little oyster island is acquired by samuel ellis um, a colonial New Yorker and merchant. He's from Wrexham in Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, and he buys it in 1774. Uh, he dies in 1794. And then the ownership kind of passes down through his family. It goes to like his young, his like daughter's son or something. And then that kid dies very young. And then it goes to somebody else. So they own it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has a long history of being used by the military. So from about 1794 to 1890, it's it's being used by the military a lot. So when the British occupy New York, New York City during the Revolutionary War, um, it is used. So they the British start to enter through that um, harbor, and they decide we need to build something there to keep them from getting through. Mm-hmm. So they do build. <laughs> they build something there for the War of 1812. Now, you would think it's a fort, and I guess technically it is, but it's never used during battle. Huh. Um, and it kind of just becomes like a barracks for a while, and then it becomes um, like storage for, it's an artillery like a munitions. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't really get used. So we say used by the military, but it's not actively really (laughs) so after it's done being used by the military this is kind of when it we're going to start seeing it used as like an immigration port Mm -hmm. so before 1890 individual states regulated immigration into the u.s the federal government didn't really have a hand in it Mm -hmm. 
immigration wasn't that intense mm-hmm. before 1890. So there was a period People after the Revolutionary in, War. But it wasn't yeah. a mass immigration, yeah. really. Um, yeah, there was a period, of course, but again, like, people are going into individual ports and individual states, and then the states just kind of handle it. Uh-huh. However, um, at this point in Europe, there's a lot of stuff unrest. Yeah. There's some economic issues, bunch of religious issues, so people start leaving kind of en masse. Um, so... A lot of them come through Castle Garden, which is now known as Castle Clinton, um, on the southern tip of Manhattan. There's a big influx of immigrants there. Um, More than 8 million immigrants pass through Castle Garden between 1855 and 1890. And that's kind of the first major wave of immigration. So it becomes very clear at this point that Castle Garden is not equipped to handle that many people. So the federal government decides to intervene, and this is when they kind of start taking over immigration Immigration. into the country. And they decide to construct a federally operated immigration station on Ellis Island. So the new structure is built of Georgia pine, and this is important. Okay. Um, And it opens on January 1st, 1892. And the first person to pass through is Annie Moore. She is a teenage girl from Ireland. She has her two younger brothers with her, and she becomes the first immigrant to be processed at Ellis Island. Um, And then over the next 62 years, more than 12 million immigrants come in through Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. So wild. Um, And it is near the Statue of Liberty, so Mm -hmm. that was like a whole thing. A picture in our history books of boats coming into Ellis Island and seeing the, the statue, statue as they get Especially close. when it's, like, wartime and post-war immigration. Yeah. Like, when we start getting into World War One and World War Two mm-hmm. immigration during that period. That is very much the image. A symbol. Yeah. And people yeah. from other countries know it. They expect to see it yeah. when they're coming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just found this interesting. First and second class passengers coming on boats over to New York Harbor are not required to go through inspection at Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. So um, they would get sort of a cursory inspection while they're still on their ships. Mm-hmm. The theory was that if a person can afford to buy a first or second class ticket, then they are affluent. They're less likely to become a public public money suck, mm-hmm. I guess, um, in the country because they won't have crazy medical bills or a lot of legal issues because they're rich Mm -hmm. um and so they didn't need to be processed according to our government Mm -hmm. um now if they are sick or if they have like a record of legal problems even if they are first First or or second second class class. they do have to be processed so they send them to Mm -hmm. the um to ellis island for further inspection at that point um so when they would arrive in New York, they would dock at the Hudson Hudson or East River piers, and then the first and second class passengers get off the boats, and then they pass through customs at the piers. Rather than through the immigration center. Right, unless they are, again, sick or yeah. there are some other legal issues, then they send them on to Ellis Island. And then the third class passengers are transported from the pier by ferry or a barge to Ellis Island, and then they would undergo their medical and legal inspections. Um, now, 
early in the morning on June 15th, 1897, a fire breaks out Mm -hmm. at Ellis Island. And this is why I said it was important that it was made of Georgia pine. Yeah. Because it caught and it went up. Uh Nobody, I don't think we really know what started the fire, but regardless, um, a lot of it is burnt up. Nobody is uh, harmed, Uh thankfully. Um, but we lose a lot of federal and state immigration records, uh, dating back to 1855 in this So even stuff from before Ellis Island was functioning because they they just moved the whole office there. Yeah. Ooh, man. So the U.S. Treasury orders the whole thing to be rebuilt and they say all future structures built on Ellis Island have to be fireproof. Because all of the documents are, at this time at least, paper. Like, Right. Um, now... We do not have those immigration records. However, they still have the customs records. So you can look them up, mm-hmm. like, through Ellis Island's website. You can look up the customs they go records. Because cust- they went through customs and so through. So if people yeah. brought things with them and they were sorted through customs, you would find that. Sure. Um, on December 17th, 1900, the new main building is opened. And that day, 2,251 immigrants are received through it. Wow. So they're still, it's a yeah. lot. That's why they need to rebuild it so fast. Right. Because the influx during this period is huge. Intense. Yeah. Um, so if you arrive at Ellis Island and your papers are in order and you're in reasonably reasonably good health, your whole inspection process on Ellis Island will probably last about three to five hours. Oh, man. That's crazy. So that's without other complications. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, there's a manifest log on the ship for when you are coming in and it will be filled out at the port of departure and it will have your name and answers to a bunch of questions uh-huh. like 29 questions um and then it is given to the legal inspectors at ellis island when you get there and they kind of cross-examine you and do like a whole legal thing uh-huh. um and actually i read on the Ellis Island, I think it was on their website, that um, there were actually, like, interpreters of all major languages there. would have there. to be. I think a lot of people think there aren't. There uh-huh. weren't at the time. But, yeah, it would be so impossible to get everybody processed. It would take so long. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that it was out of the consideration of the American people yeah. because they were still very xenophobic at the time and still are. Yeah. But it was, like, you an efficiency have, thing. You cannot have an immigration office without that people would be of other wild. languages. Or people who can speak other languages. It would be so yeah. wild. Um, now, does that mean people did, never fell through the cracks? Of course not. No, of lots course of, not. I'm so sure lots of people went through custom, immigration at... Ellis Island, unable to speak in their native language. I'm so sure that yeah. that was an experience of many people. But. You know, or they lied on their papers, and so their stuff wasn't accurate when they came into the country. Yeah. You know, who knows? Um, over the years, there are lots of expansions on Ellis Island. They get a kitchen and a laundry and a train ticketing station and a ferry mm. house, of course, because as you're leaving, you need to be able to go get wherever back. you're yeah. going. Um, they add more buildings, they have more waiting areas and barracks with like 700 plus beds. So if you need to stay there, if your process you can, is taking too long, yeah, there's, or you need to wait for a boat back or right, whatever. Yeah. yeah. There's a hospital. It has a contagious diseases ward. Now that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> there's a greenhouse that's added in 1910. They buy up other islands. Um, again, there's a lot more to this history and like who's doing the building and who's buying yeah. the land and all that stuff. So they buy, I think two more islands and then those are all the buildings on them are connected by a crib walk and it Whoa. kind of forms an E. That's wild. <laughs> so for Ellis Island. <laughs> um, 
And by the time Island 3 is completed in 1906, Ellis Island covers 20.25 acres. Wow. So it's pretty large. Uh-huh. Um, 1907 is its busiest year with about 1.25 million immigrants processed. Wow. It is temporarily closed during World War I um, from 1917 to 1919. Um, and during that time, the facilities are used as a jail for suspected enemy combatants. Uh-huh. Um, and then later, it's used as a treatment center for wounded American soldiers. Mm-hmm. So the big, big immigration period that we're talking about here, about 1880 to 1924, during this time, there's obviously a lot of politicians and xenophobes uh-huh. um, who are anxious about the amount well, of people coming into the in country the early 1900s nativism and yeah in, like um oh i had the word and i lost it nationalism no oh. the opposite of imperialism Can't <laughs> um where that was like the thing like there were a bunch yeah. of people who were like we don't need to be in other people's business and other people don't need to be in our business right and that was like that was a huge belief system before right. we started taking a lot of land and then yeah. we were like oh this is Oh, this is actually like it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was. So they start, they want to put a lot of restrictions on immigration. So we all know that this is still a problem Uh in this country. Um, There's a literacy test they Mm. want them to have. And then, of course, we get the Chinese Exclusion Act, the alien contract labor law, a lot of quota laws, Uh and the National Origins Act laws. These are. A lo- Again, we could talk a lot about the actual regulations, but the point of all of them is to limit who can come into the United right. States. Um, and a lot of it is based on ethnic groups, because <laughs> America do be loving white people mm-hmm. and pretty much nobody else. Mm-hmm. So as a result of all of that, Ellis Island has a really rapid decline in usage beginning in the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's downgraded from a primary inspection center to an immigrant detention center, so it only starts hosting people who are being detained there uh-huh. because something's not right or they're being deported. Uh-huh. Um, by 1947, shortly after the end of World War II, there are a lot of proposals to close Ellis Island because it's a lot of money to keep it open, mm-hmm. um, and they aren't housing as many people as, as they, they once to. were. Yeah. So it is officially closed on November 12th, 1954, um, with the departure of its last detainee, a Norwegian merchant seaman, Arne Pedersen, um, who had been arrested for overstaying his shore leave. (laughs) So he's the last one to go. Wow. Um, And it becomes part of the national park system in 1965. Um, President Lyndon B. Johnson makes it so. Mm -hmm. And then in 1990, it's reopened as like a museum about immigration. Yeah. So... It's crazy. Yeah. A lot going on there. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. New Year's Day. Yeah. New opportunities for a lot of the people who built America. And other new difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. It, accidentally an American-centric New Year's Day I know, that we I gave ourselves. I know. It really intentional. Yeah. It was just. Those were the, the things that we found that mo- immediately most interesting yeah. from New <laughs> yeah. Year's Day. So that's those so. are the ones we picked up on. Yeah. We did it. Hey, you guys, Happy New Year. I hope you had safe holidays. Um, You know, lots going on in the world. Times are hard. Mm -hmm. But 
let's try to be better in 2024 in general. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. I don't know what our next episode is going to be. Couldn't tell you. We haven't thought that far ahead. No. So we we just barely scraped this one out. So yeah, and it was a shorter episode. So, but. We're glad you're here with us. Thank mm-hmm. you for coming back after our hiatus to listen again, if you did. Um, I forget what I say now. Or where to follow all of the things, yeah. If you want to send us suggestions for future episodes, or if you have questions or comments, et cetera, et cetera, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. You can find us on threads, mm-hmm. I guess, and Instagram at rttpod. We're also on Facebook if you want to find us there. Um, and if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. Oh, we did it. Yeah. Cheers. New Year's cheers. New Year's cheers. Yay. Well, <laughs> until next time, remember that time.